morning. Welcome to Atheist Talk and KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We appreciate you all for tuning into the show. Today is Sunday, November 29th, 2015. I'm Scott Lohman. Today I'm interviewing David Kyle Johnson. We welcome listener interaction during the live show with your phone calls to 952-946-6205 or your emails to radio at mnatheist.org. The holiday season is upon us, along with the return of the alleged war on Christmas. David Collard Johnson examines that in The Myth That Stole Christmas, Seven Misconceptions That Hijacked the Holiday, and How We Can Take It Back. David Kyle Johnson is an associate professor at uh, King's College in Wilkes-Barre, um, Pennsylvania, and he lectures and speaks on topics related to the Christmas holiday, as well as other things. His books include Introducing Philosophy Through Pop Culture and Inception in Philosophy. He's also done courses for The Great Courses. You can find links and program archives on the website at minnesotaatheist.org. Kyle Johnson, welcome to Atheist Talk. Hey, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on. This is going to be just great. You have got a book that that doesn't look very thick, but is dense in material here. So tell me how. Yes, but I tr- but I tried very hard to make it readable, even though it is. But I, I tried to have like kind of a a big surprise on every page, almost. Yep, you got lots and lots and lots of great stuff in there. So how did you get interested in this to begin with? Oh, that's a good question. It was a very gradual process where I basically started wondering where Santa Claus came from. Why we tell this. You know, lie to our children at Christmas and that kind of stuff, and and uh, where that exactly came from. And so I started researching that, and, and that that led me to a self-published book. So I wasn't sure how accurate it was. So I started kind of fact-checking that book, and that led me to a bunch of other books. It turned into this whole thing. I ended up ordering all of these other books. It turned into a course, uh, and then that eventually turned into the book. Yeah. So it, we know how that goes. That that leads a lot of us to different places. Like, why is this? And it's like, yeah, ten books later, and a bunch of other stuff, and and you're still checking on it. So, yep. Let's take a look, and um, we'll we'll um, find ways to sneak in other stuff. But let's just start and work our way through the myths. We've got seven, and we've got an hour. So, the first one is Jesus is the reason for the season. Yes. Well, I imagine that a number of your listeners are already familiar with the fact that this one is a myth. Yeah. Um, right, that, uh, you know, uh, December celebrations and even the celebration specific birthday celebrations on December 25th uh, date back far before uh, when uh, Jesus would have been born. Um, you have the Roman Saturnalia. Uh, you have uh, the Sol Invictus. Uh, birthday on December 25th, and then Robin Saturnalia would have been, uh, it's around, uh, it ends around the 20th, it starts around the 17th, I think that's right, uh, but it kinda, it's, a, it's a late December celebration, and these things have a lot in common uh, with uh, with our celebrations, and in fact, it's where our celebrations in December derive. Uh, you can even trace back, I, I go into this in the book, you can trace it back even further, about 2,000 years before um uh, when Jesus would have been born, you have other celebrations that still even have remnant, uh, are reminiscent of the things that we do today. Um, and so basically what happens is, you know, Saturday is a great example. is this time of feasting and partying. It was basically a harvest celebration uh, in the ancient world. It was the perfect time to party because it was the time in which there was no work left to be done. You couldn't plan until the spring. You had all this abundance of food, and so people just party-hardied. Um, and basically when... Constantine comes along and tries to Christianize Rome uh, and get a lot of converts. Everyone, it's very hard to get the populace to convert, uh, and so and they're, they're, still, they're still celebrating. And so the church basically declares, "Oh no, December 25th, when everybody's celebrating, they're not just celebrating Sol Invictus; they're really celebrating Jesus's birthday. That's what's really going on. 
People don't care as long as they get to party. Uh, and so they basically kind of tack Jesus on to that already existing holiday and try to convince people uh, that that's the actual reason for the season. That's actually why they're celebrating. And over a few generations, that tactic works. People kind of over generations, people forget where the celebrations originated. Um, but that's why Jesus is not actually the reason that we celebrate during this season. Historically speaking, yeah, and and there's even a lot of reasons why if if um, we try and trace back to a, a historical Jesus, depending on which way you go on that one, uh, his birthday wouldn't even be in December. Oh, most definitely not, right? Uh, I mean, the only clue that we would have in regarding when he was actually born is uh, the shepherds watching their flocks at night, which in no way would ever happen in December. Um, so if you take the biblical narratives at all to be historically accurate, then he definitely is not born in December. Now, of course, I go into this in detail in the book. The, the narratives, the, the, the nativity narratives in Luke and Matthew definitely are not historically accurate. Um, they are very clearly um, theological uh, treatises, basically. They're, they're, they're the authors of Luke and Matthew telling a story uh, that basically gets the facts of the facts of what they thought they knew about Jesus right, that he was from Nazareth but born in Bethlehem, um, and that he was heralded by great signs and that kind of stuff. They're, they're each telling a, a different version of, the, of a story that has those elements in it, but that are completely contradictory and out of line with historical evidence as well. Um, so it's very clear that they're not historically accurate. So we really have no idea when he w- would have been born. Yeah, and they were basically trying to get in religious philosophy into those stories as well, because the, the Gospels were just sort of aimed at different um, sort of belief areas in order to try and convert people over to uh, Christianity. Yeah, I mean, basically trying to tell a, an origin story that resonates with the people of the time, that, that Jesus, if he's going to be a god uh, or divine at all, needs to, have, uh, needs to have elements of his origin story to be similar to what people believe the origin stories of gods were like, and so it interjects the virgin. Well, the virgin birth actually may be something a little bit differently motivated, but it interjects the signs and the wonders and, you know, that kind of stuff to, to show that he was heralded. Yeah, that always makes that fun. So the second reason is there is a war on Christmas. And the fun thing I was noticing this week is that there's a couple of different groups out there that, that have the naughty and nice lists, the American, yeah, right. the, the American Family Association and the Liberty Council. And the interesting things is somebody decided to look at their lists and they've got contradictions. <laughs> so <All right. laughs> it's always okay. So we've got the the true side of the war of Christmas and they can't even figure out who they're going to consider naughty and nice. But anyway, is there a war on Christmas? Right. Yeah. So the, the idea that there's a war on Christmas is certainly a myth. Uh, it's not a new one either, by the way. Uh, this goes back as far as like Henry Ford, uh, who was an anti-Semite, uh, said the Jews were, uh, were waging a war on Christmas. Um, the John Birch Society in the 50s said it was the communists. Uh, and then it was uh, some conservative Republicans in the 90s, uh, really conservative right-wing Republicans in the 90s, that said it was the liberal Democrats. And then, of course, that eventually made its way on the Fox News and Bill O'Reilly. Uh, it's just this really convenient way of demonizing uh, those that you don't like. Uh, and so it's, it's, been a, it's been that way for about a century, to, to claim that you know, people you don't like are waging war on Christmas. That's a really easy way to demonize them. Um, but most of the, the examples are completely made up. Um, Excuse me. So, I mean, literally, some of them are just outright false, right? Some people claim that uh, schools in Plano, Texas, uh, outlawed green and red, that nobody could display green and red at their schools. That just never happened. Um, Lincoln Chafee actually did call the Christmas tree 
at the, the Rhode Island Capitol a holiday tree. That actually did happen, but so did the Republican governor, governor before him for like eight years, but nobody cared until a Democrat did it, right? So it, it's these completely exaggerated um, claims about, uh, you know, corporations or businesses or government or whatever waging a war on Christmas. They're either completely hyperbolic or exaggerated, or they're just outright false. Uh, for example, Walmart never actually required any of its greeters to say, uh, happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. It did encourage them to maybe choose that more inclusive phrase, but it never required it uh, at all. Yeah, corporations usually try and leave that to the discretion of their, their employees who are on the front lines um, on that sort of thing. So that's why that really varies um, as to how they do that. And other than the they've, um, you've got a, a great chapter, we'll deal with the, the economy part uh, mm-hmm. coming down the line. Um, it just just basing it on that fact alone is just not grasping how large corporations function. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, is I mean, even if they were doing that, it's it's a noble effort, right? You're trying to be more inclusive in the same way that I wouldn't uh, wish somebody a happy Father's Day unless I knew they were a father. Or uh, I certainly wouldn't say, if I were a Christian, I wouldn't say, uh, well, he's with Jesus now to a Jewish person whose son just died or something like that. You, you don't say Merry Christmas uh, to someone uh, necessarily if uh, you don't know that they actually celebrate Christmas. But on the flip side of that, it really should, Merry Christmas should not be an offensive phrase to anyone because despite the fact that Christ is in the name, Christmas is not a Christian holiday. It never has been. It's never been celebrated that way. Its origins, as we, as we discussed, are certainly not Christian, but throughout the Middle Ages, it was never celebrated as a religious holiday. Uh, it was stamped out by Christians for a while. The Puritans tried to stamp it out. But even when it came back, it came back as primarily a secular holiday. Uh, so Christmas is not any more of a Christian holiday than Sunday is a day of sun worship, even though that's where it gets its name. Yeah, I like like the part that you mentioned about the Puritans that there were like fines and and like oh, was there jail time or is it just the fines yep. for not doing that? Yep, you know, there were fines. Uh, you could probably go to jail if you really, really were flagrant about uh, celebrating Christmas, especially if you would have been caught drunk on the streets or something like that on Christmas, which that's the reason that they primarily opposed it is because it wasn't celebrated in a Christian way. Uh, Christmas back then was much more akin to something that was much more akin to what we would call St. Patrick's Day. That's how people celebrated it, by getting drunk and partying. There was lots of sex involved, lots of feasting. Um, I guess feasting isn't associated with St. Patrick's Day, but other than that, it was like St. Patrick's Day. Um, and the Puritans, of course, hated that that kind of debauchery, and so they would make illegal celebrations of Christmas. So if you were flagrantly out on the street drunk on Christmas, yeah, you probably could end up in jail. Yeah, that always makes that uh, so quite interesting. We're down to about a minute before the break, so let's just mention at this point one of the, the great courses that you've got coming up, and we can give you a little more time later on. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I that I do at Christmas comes up every now and again uh, in my Great Courses courses. But, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm a professor for the Great Courses in, in addition to being a professor here at King's. And I have a course out now called Expo- Exploring Metaphysics. Um, and then I also have one coming out in January uh, called The Big Questions of Philosophy, which atheist listeners will really be friendly to. I think they will really, because I talk about God's existence and, and a lot of different questions that, that atheists uh, and humanists in general are uh, very, very interested in. Yeah, and if you can keep philosophy approachable, it really makes it a lot of fun. Like you may not have noticed, but we had philosophy talk that was on before this show, which is kind of a cool way to move into it. So, oh yeah, uh, yeah. Please stay with us through the break. You're listening to Atheist yep. Talk on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota.
Welcome back to Atheist Talk on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. I'm Scott Lohman. If you have a comment or a question, please call us at 952-946-6205 or send an email to radio at mnatheist.org. Uh, Kyle Johnson, welcome back to ACS Talk. So why don't you let people know where they can find the book and where they can find um, your other writings and uh, what you're up to. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, the book is available on Amazon, both a Kindle edition or ebook edition, and then the uh, print book should be available by now, I believe. I looked last time it was there. Um, you can also get it at the, if you just go to the Humanist Publication website. I think it's just humanist.com. I'd have to look at it again there. But just uh, if you just Google the Misfits All Christmas, that'll show up there, um, but available on Amazon there. You can also find um, my other books and stuff, of course, are on Amazon uh, as well. But if you're also interested in uh, anything else that I've written, whether journal articles or whatever, and I, I really pride myself in making, you were kind of talking at the end of the last break, making philosophy presentable and understandable to non-philosophers, to the general public. Um, I have a site on academia.edu where I have posted all of my work um, there. Any of my journal articles are there. I write a lot for the Pop Culture and Philosophy uh, series uh, through Wiley and Blackwell. Um, I have a lot of kind of fun, interesting articles. I have all of mine that, that I've ever written posted there as well. Um, uh, I've got a blog for Psychology Today where I do a lot of work on the logic uh, and applying logic to everyday things, uh, like things in the media and, and that kind of stuff. So you can find me on Psychology Today too. Um, so, but if, like, academia.edu's got everything. It's got all my great courses. It's got all of my it's got links to my blogs. It's got all of my papers. Everything is there. Just Google David Kyle Johnson academia.edu. You'll find me. Sounds good. So let's keep moving down the list. And um, there's some fun things in this next chapter called our Christmas. Traditions are old fashioned. Yeah. I like the fact that you talk about the uh, what what we know is or see is sort of the classic nativity scene is actually a whole big old mishmash of stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, whoa. Um, I talk about a little bit about that in chapter one, and then there's a little bit comes up in chapter three. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, the nativity scene is a giant mishmash of the two nativity stories in Matthew and Luke pushed together. Uh, and then uh, people basically kind of desperate for more information, looking to other apocryphal Gospels and finding information there and then claiming that as actual, like, actual canon, even though it's not actual canon because it's not one of the four Gospels, uh, like the, the star of uh, the star of David, uh, the star of Bethlehem, excuse me, being bright, um, the the names of the well, I'm not even sure where the names of the wise men come from. Maybe not from an apocryphal gospel. Um, the idea that Mary always folds her hands in front of a, a baby Jesus. That's another one that comes from the apocryphal gospels. Um, the fact that the wise men rode camels was borrowed from the Old Testament. Uh, basically, people misread uh, an Old Testament passage, um, thinking that it was about the wise men when it wasn't. But it said they, they, were, they said the word camels, and so they gave uh, the camels uh, they gave camels to the wise men. Uh, so it is this, this kind of mismatch of all these different things from all these different elements, which really are none of it. None of it's historically accurate at all. So, what about some of the other traditions? Yeah, so, I mean, we have this idea that, like, Santa Claus is an ancient tradition. He's not. He's only about 200 years old. Giving gifts to children at Christmas time is not that old either, only about two, about 200 years old. Um, somewhere in the Netherlands and a couple of other places, there were very small gifts left in children's shoe, uh, but nothing like the gifts that we give them now. Um, that's only about 200 years old. Basically, the domestication of Christmas, making it about children instead of about getting drunk and eating a lot, that's only about 200 years old. Um, so uh, one, of the old, one of the traditions that's 
not uh, that's not brand new that actually is ancient is a social inversion, the kind of idea where the rich looked after the poor or the more well-to-do look after those who are underneath them. That actually dates all the way back to Saturnalia. Um, before about 200 years ago, uh, so about 250 years ago, with sailing was a very common tradition uh, where if you had servants that worked for you, they would be led into the house, kind of like a, a big trick or treat. They'd be led, led into the house in December, uh, on December 25th, and they could demand uh, the uh, the house's best food and drink, and you were obligated to give it to them. Um, this is where we wish you a Merry Christmas, and we won't leave until we get some, bring us some figgy pudding. That's where that song comes from. It's an old with sailing song where people would literally burst into the house and demand that your your best food uh, be given until and or otherwise they wouldn't leave um which adds such so, a neat te- context to that song yes it does i mean it finally makes sense right why are these people here and why do they demand so much figgy pudding and why won't they leave that's why it's because it's a sailing song uh but to the social inversion i mean that has continued right christmas is still a time to look after uh the poor and the needy um and people often do that although not as much as they probably should because we spend so much time focusing on kids um but interestingly, that tradition in and of itself has got some nefarious roots, uh, specifically uh, the, the, the bell ringing tradition, right? So the, the, the Salvation Army and their, and their bell ringers. Now, I'm not knocking that tradition as it stands right now. I'm not going to say anything about that. But its origins are a bit nefarious. It starts back uh, late 1800s. And uh, basically, the Salvation Army would put on these lavish meals for poor people. Um, and they would, but to pay for them, what they would do is they would rent out Madison Square Garden and put on this huge meal for the poor. But the way they paid for it primarily was by selling tickets to rich people that that would then sit in the seats in Madison Square Garden, put on their best Sunday duds, and watch the poor people eat as a spectacle. Um, it was it's a fascinating piece of christmas history that you just don't see coming uh and it didn't pay for all of the uh didn't pay for all the meals the tickets didn't and so to supplement uh uh basically the the costs that's where they started the bell ringers they would put the bell ringers out on the street uh to get a little bit more money to pay for those those giant feasts yeah that's fascinating i never heard or ran into that before but until um seeing you cover that in your book and so that's, you know, it's always interesting to find out that these things that we think have been going on for a long time are just just a blip in history on what's going on with this time of the year. Yeah, and what's fascinating, I call them brand new old-fashioned traditions, that, that a lot of our Christmas traditions are this way, that we invent them, and then within 20 years, people are thinking that they've been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, the Christmas tree is like this. We think the Christmas tree has been around and very, very popular for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, it actually has only existed for about 500 years, and most of that time it was just a local tradition in very specific places in Germany. It wasn't even popular all over Germany. It was just specific villages in Germany. Only around 1820, when Christmas really starts to make its comeback, does the Christmas tree actually become a nationwide in America and in Germany tradition? So really, and even then it was just a, 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 a tree on a tabletop. The actual full-size Christmas tree that you put in your living room, that's only about 100, maybe 150 years old. Well, that's kind of fascinating on that part of it because they always talk about some of that going way back and then trying to, to craft it into some of the other legends related to the holiday Yes, that's what makes Christmas uh, research so difficult is because people love to make up explanations for things. And then 20 years later, it's in a book as fact, and it's not accurate at all. I mean, there's I, I, in my book, I talk about five different origin stories for the Christmas tree, 
all of them are false. All of them are myths, but you can find them all in fairly reputable books. Yeah, that's that. It, and that's, you know, almost it, it takes a look at things at how we as human beings like to uh, keep reinventing um, our stories as we move through time and as things adapt, as our cultures change and that sort of thing. That's just it's sort of a fascinating look at, at how we are as human beings with our culture. Yeah, yeah, and we see this even as like uh, when Christianity rolled through Europe. Uh, it did not convert the masses by pulling them completely over to their side. They, they employed what I call an adopt, adapt and adopt method, where basically they would adapt to the culture by adopting their traditions um, and basically integrated their religions into their own. This okay. is where so many Catholic saints come from. Yeah, i got to jump in there so because we're coming up to break. So please stay with us for the break. You're listening to Atheist Talk on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. This time of year has long been a time for humans to celebrate. It has always, it, but it has not always been Christmas uh, on that. Kyle Johnson has researched Christmas and examines the myths surrounding the holiday in his book, The Myths That Stole Christmas. Welcome back to ACS Talk on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. If you have a question or a comment, please call us at 952-946-6205 or email to radio at macist.org. I'm Scott Loman. Many of you know about this show by listening to us on the air, streaming live on your computer, or by listening to us as a podcast. Please make a donation online at minnesotaatheists.org or contact us at info at minnesotaatheists.org. Any amount you can donate, no matter how large or small, helps. Kyle Johnson, welcome back to Atheist Talk. Thanks, Scott. Okay, we're moving on to number four, which is so appropriate for us to be talking about this particular weekend, is that Christmas spending is good for the economy. Yes. Uh, so this is maybe my most, no, this can't be my most controversial chapter, but it's definitely going to be most unintuitive to people. I don't know. It's so common to just assume that all the spending we do at Christmas must be good for the economy because, of course, spending is always good for the economy. Um, but I argue that this is not the case uh, in numerous ways. For one, uh, at best, I think that Christmas spending has just no impact on the economy uh, at all in the long run. And what I mean by that is this. Um, spending is certainly good for the economy. Spending money is necessary for the economy to work. However, if it weren't for our obligation to spend at Christmas time, it is not the case that we just wouldn't spend at all. That's the kind of uh, that's the kind of fallacy that lays behind the idea that Christmas spending is good for the economy. It's the idea that, well, if we did all that, all that spending at Christmas is good for the economy because if we didn't spend that money, well, that would be bad. Yeah, but the thing is, is if we didn't spend it at Christmas, we just spend it at a different time. What Christmas does is just concentrates our spending at the end of the year. But if we didn't have that kind of social obligation to spend money on others, uh, spend money on gifts, at Christmas time, we would just likely spend it at, on other things at other times during the year, kind of spread out throughout the year. So it doesn't matter that the spending's at the end of the year. It's just the fact that it's spent. And most of us, if we've got money to spend, aren't going to not spend it. Now, we might, instead of spending it on retail goods, we might do something else with it, like save it or pay off part of our mortgage or invest it. Uh, and because we don't have that social obligation to spend it on kind of worthless retail goods um, that we usually spend them on, on, spend our money on on Christmas, um, but that's not a bad thing. Uh, 
John Maynard Keynes called it the paradox of thrift, that saving was bad for the economy. But I actually don't think this is the case. I think that actually, I mean, when you save money, certainly when you invest money or whenever you pay off your mortgage, uh, but even when you save it, you're not subtracting that money from the economy. You're just putting it in a different place. You're putting it in a bank. But the more money a bank has, the more money it can lend out to businesses to pay its employees, uh, to expand its business, to provide more goods and services. And that's all good for the economy. So the money is all still there. It's just being spent. And in fact, savings is just a different kind of spending. Uh, and so my, my claim is that it certainly wouldn't hurt the economy. Um, it might even help it in a certain kind of way to, to not spend at Christmas time. But specifically, I even argue that Christmas spending does hurt the economy in two different ways. One, or maybe in three different ways, one is that it creates a lot of waste. People are spending more money on things than they are worth. Um, if that makes sense, right? So the, the kind of idea is that whenever you buy a gift for someone that they don't want, they would have only spent $10 on it. But let's say that you spent $100 on it. Well, that's $90 of uh, what Wad Fogel, who's an economist, who's got a great little book called Scroogeonomics, what he calls deadweight loss. And so it actually de decreases value uh, in a certain kind of way um, because we're spending money more money than things are worth. Um, in addition, it inflates the credit bubble because so many people put their purchases on credit cards, and the bigger the credit bubble is, the weaker our economy is. Um, but worse yet, we're propping up worthless parts of our economy. We should be spending our first dollars, as it were, on things that are necessary, our infrastructure, on businesses that provide goods and services that are, that are really, really useful, not spending our first dollars on electronic entertainment and jewelry and that kind of stuff. And those are the kinds of things that are bought most often uh, at Christmas time. Um, and so, and in fact, this is actually, you may think this is ridiculous that it's un-American not to spend on Black Friday, but one of the quotes that I, that I, I take from Stephen Nussenbaum's book, The Battle for Christmas, points out that in early America, that kind of spending, spending on frivolity, was actually considered un-American, that this was the kind of things that decadent European countries did. And if, if America was going to be stable, it had to spend its money more wisely on things that would keep it going like its infrastructure, right? Uh, I take the book, to, the opportunity in the book to lament the fact that we spend literally billions and billions and in fact deadweight loss in the billions at Christmas time. And then we gripe about a few million dollars being spent on infrastructure. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a travesty. So yeah, that's the kind of argument I give regarding the economy. Okay, so that pretty much covers that part. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff on that. So that chapter gives people um, a little more to think about because you, you pull back to make a much bigger picture on that than most people think about um, on how that, that um, and other ways to think about how our economy functions and what we can do to make that work better for us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I even talk about charitable giving uh, in that chapter about how doing it wrong can actually decrease the value of money and, 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 and decrease the worth of money. But doing it right voluntarily can really actually create, uh, can actually do the economy quite, quite good and actually create worth in the economy if you give down, basically, um, the social ladder. It can be worth a lot more. And I also deal with... Uh, the, the, the challenge is going through everybody's heads right now. What a Scrooge. What a Grinch. I deal with that, those kind of objections in that chapter as well. Yep, there's some great stuff on that. So uh, moving on, Santa Claus is St. Nicholas. 
Yeah, this one's fun. So the myth is that Santa Claus is St. Nicholas, that Santa Claus is just an Americanization of this Catholic saint, St. Nicholas. Uh, and that is not true in so many different ways. Uh, this is a really, this is a really fun chapter. There's so much information in here. Um, basically, if you, I mean, if you think about it, of course he's not. If you look at the kind of quintessential text on Santa Claus the night before Christmas, what Catholic saint ever wore fur from his head to his foot, flew around in a magical sleigh pulled by magical reindeer with, with names named after elemental powers like thunder and lightning, Donder and Blitzen, um, instead of things like faith, hope, and charity, uh, was covered in soot, was like a little peddler who had a little bag that pulled out trinkets, um, was, a t- was an elf, was a tiny little elf. Most people don't realize that in that poem, Santa Claus is not the full-grown, rotund person that we usually know. He is a tiny little elf with a miniature sleigh and a tiny reindeer. That's how he fits down the chimney. He doesn't use magic to fit down the chimney. He just fits down the chimney because he's that small. What Catholic saint has any of those properties? Clearly, there's something more to Santa Claus than just an Americanization of a Catholic saint. Um, so I go into so much more detail uh, on this in the book. So, and this is one of my favorite chapters in the book. So if you want this, get the book. Um, yeah, but the origins of Santa have much more to do with a nefarious figure that is actually becoming more and more popular in American culture. In fact, there's two movies about him uh, just this season called Krampus. Uh, Krampus, or Americanization, you say Krampus. Um, Krampus is a demon, basically, a kind of demonic figure um, that accompanies St. Nicholas uh, in Europe. And he is the one who dispenses the punishment, dispenses the punishments. So St. Nicholas will lead him around on chains. And that's how you know that they're coming, is you can hear the chains rattling uh, when you hear St. Nicholas and Krampus coming. And if you've been good, well, St. Nicholas might give you little treats, but if you've been bad... He might drop the chains and unleash Krampus upon you. And Krampus can whip you with his birch rods, or he has a sack, but it's not filled with goodies. He will stuff bad children into his sack or basket and then haul them off to hell. Like the the picture that you've got in your book. Yes, yes, like yeah. So the cover of the book is is a Saint Nicholas like figure, but he's stuffing a boy in a bag, right? Well, this is because what happened was that Saint Nicholas Krampus pair throughout Europe, often especially by Protestants, would be merged together, and they would become a lone single gift giver, but also punishment figure. So that they that's like the one figure that one Saint Nicholas or uh, Sinterklaas or whatever figure would bring the punishment, but also the rewards. This became Bell's Nickel for the Pennsylvania Germans, uh, something that's very popular. In fact, I go see Bell's Nickel every year because I live in Pennsylvania. There's a place nearby that actually has a guy that dresses up like Bell's Nickel who's fantastic. Um, and he has the birch, rad, birch rods, but also his sack. And the chains for the, like the Bell's Nickel figure, this, this kind of agglomerate figure, has changed. The, the chains are no longer chains. They're Bell's. That's how you hear the bells nickel coming, is you hear his bells on his outfit ringing. Well, that's also how we know Santa Claus is coming, when you hear the jingle bells, jing, jing, and that's where that comes from. Trace it back far enough, those are actually Krampus's chains. Now, where Krampus comes from, that's an even further story that goes even further back, thousands and thousands of years back, is a fascinating story about where it comes from. He appears in many different places, uh, in very, very many different forms, but that's where Santa, for example, gets his fur. That's why he wears fur from his head to his foot, because Krampus wore fur from his head to his foot, uh, and the, the predecessors uh, that come from him wore 
more fur as well. Um, so that's Krampus and that kind of demonic figure has a lot more to do with the origins of Santa Claus than St. Nicholas. And, by the way, I also argue that St. Nicholas never actually historically existed in that chapter as well. Yeah, that sort of brings that up. And you can also see how that comes in with what Charles Dickens did in A Christmas Carol um, mm-hmm. with, the, with the, um, the ghost with the chains bringing that part of it in. That's quite fascinating. Yes, yes. I mean, like whenever the, 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 the initial ghost, the Marley ghost, appears, it's heralded by bells. The bells in uh, uh, Scrooge's quarters ring, and then you hear the chains rattling, and then it turns out to be the ghost, right? But that's, yeah, there's, there's clear reminiscence, uh, there's, you know, there's clear kind of echoes uh, of that old tradition in there. Yeah, so that's that's um, kind of fun on that, especially since Dickens had a lot to do with um, some of our modern Christmas traditions as well. Oh, yeah, there's a great book, I forget the name, uh, Lee Stanover, I want to say, but that might be wrong, called The Man Who Invented Christmas, and it's about Dickens uh, and his uh, his, his poem, or his, his poem, his story, uh, A Christmas Carol, and um, we think of we think of it as describing what Christmas was like at the time, and it's not uh, at all. In, in, the, in the same way that uh, Clement Clark Moore's poem, The Night Before Christmas, invented a tradition, so did um, A Christmas Carol kind of invent Christmas in a certain kind of way. Um, it, at the time, uh, Cratchit would have been the odd man out for asking for the day off because Christmas was not something that everyone celebrated. And if they did, they celebrated it like St. Like Patrick's Day. Okay. Cratchit asking for the day off would have been like you asking for St. Patrick's Day off today. Yeah, so that makes that kind of fascinating. So we've got just under a minute. So um, just sneak in another just interesting fact about that sort of thing. Yeah, so um, the what what – Krampus has become, let's talk just a smidge about Krampus here. Um, Krampus has become more and more popular ever since I started studying this back in 2009. I keep seeing him pop up more and more. He's on Colbert Report. Uh, he was on, uh, uh, not Family Guy, but American Dad. Okay. Um, and there's two movies out about him, two horror movies out about him this year. Okay. There's two more next year. It's, it's fascinating how, how, quickly he's become popular okay well we are gonna can talk a little more about that when we come back from the break so please stay with us you're listening to atheist talk on am 950 ktnf the progressive voice of minnesota welcome back to atheist talk on am 950 ktnf the progressive voice of minnesota i'm scott loman Atheist Talk is produced with funding from the Minnesota Atheists, the Humanists of Minnesota, Farmers Insurance Agent Georgia Soy, and Cucumbers Restaurant. This week's donors include Nancy and Art. Thank you for your donations. And if you'd like to advertise in this program, please contact us at radio at mnatheists.org. This radio program is put together by dedicated volunteers and the generous donations of our listeners. If you're able to help with a donation, please consider doing so at our radio funds page. Minnesota Atheists is a 501c3 tax-deductible organization. You can find more information on the Humanists of Minnesota at humanistsofmn.org. Our music is composed by member Brent Michael Davids. You can check the schedule for book clubs, discussion groups, pub crawls, movie nights, and other gatherings throughout the year, as well as sign up for meetups, listen to podcasts, the previous programs, and subscribe to Atheist Weekly Email, and become a member all at mnatheist.org. You can also join the Humanists of Minnesota at humanistsofmn.org. And now back to our final segment with Kyle Johnson. So let's just finish up a little more on, on, on this uh, on Krumpus, which is sort of the, the anti-clause or sort of uh, the dark side. Yeah, so, I mean, 
actually, American Dad does a really good job of arguing, and it's a great book by Monty, Mich- Monty Bichamp. has a bunch of uh, old uh, postcards about Krampus, and he made this point to me as well. A lot of people call him the anti-clause, but in a lot of ways, he's not as bad as you think he is. He actually wants – in fact, he might be better than Santa Claus. He actually wants children to be good. And so that's his whole purpose, and that's why he brings the punishments. Um, in the American Dad episode, he actually gets children to behave much better than Santa Claus. Santa Claus just spoils them. He doesn't make them behave at all. He just completely spoil, makes them spoiled brats by offering punishment and consequences to bad behavior. Krampus actually encourages good behavior far better than Santa Claus does. That, that's great fun. It also you know, plays into one of the other minor fun things, which is like Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, where he even right. jumbles around a lot more stuff with those with his mishmashing there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, so let's uh, move on to um, the that Santa Claus is harmless. Yeah, so the, it's not that it's it's be very specific here. This this is a, a specific point. This the myth is that the Santa Claus lie is harmless. I'm not against Santa Claus in general uh, as a myth, as a myth that we that we tell, that we participate in, in the same way that we would participate in like Star Wars or something like that. Perfectly fine with myths and telling myths. It's when we start mixing literal belief in with those myths when it is when it becomes problem, problematic, and that's what I object to in this chapter. That's what I say is a myth: is the idea that we trick our children into believing that Santa Claus is literally real, and so they're literally believing this. That is what I think is not harmless. Um, so. Again, if when they're when they're young, when they're too young to even know the difference between fact and fiction, it's not really a big deal there. But what I advocate is, is if you do it, if you do participate in the myth and the story, even put Christmas, you know, gifts up by Santa under the trees and that kind of stuff. When they're old enough to know the difference between fact and fiction, and they ask you for the truth, either give it to them straight up, just tell them straight out, or lead them through a question and answer process where they come to the right conclusion themselves. What I think is really dangerous is when we start trying to encourage them to keep believing despite the fact that it's clearly irrational. Because ultimately what you're doing is encouraging them to be irrational, to be credulous, right? Because the way that we keep them believing is we make up bad explanations and tell them to find them convincing. We tell them to believe magical explanations or just to believe because it's fun, Um one of the great examples of this is there's this horrible documentary, mockumentary, uh, called Search for Santa you can buy on Amazon that's literally geared to show to kids to try to convince them to believe in Santa, to literally squeeze a few more years of Santa belief out of them. And it's the same kind of horrible a non-scientific documentary you find on the History Channel about ancient aliens or megalodon or mermaids or whatever. It's the same thing. But you're teaching children to actually find it convincing and to be good science. They literally equate gut thinking with scientific evidence in this thing, right? So one of my big worries, there's a few other worries. It's, it's, it's a lie. It's an immoral lie. I don't think it's justified. We have issues with, with parenting and trust that, that come up when they find out you've been, they've been lied to. But one of my biggest worries, and it's probably a worry that should be shared by most of your listeners, is that it promotes, directly promotes credulity. It encourages kids to be bad critical thinkers. Does it guarantee that they will be? No. I believed in Santa when I was a kid, and I'm a perfectly fine critical thinker. It doesn't guarantee it. But it is a risk, and I don't think it's a risk worth taking. When it comes down to it, we are just naturally credulous creatures. 
We do not think critically on our own, so we need, and it's, it's a really dangerous thing. Critical thinking, a lack of critical thinking contributes to a lot of the world's major, major problems. We need all the help we can get, and Santa Claus lie, the Santa Claus lie, is taking us in the wrong direction. Yeah, definitely. Critical thinking is an important thing. And um, sometimes that can, once they get old enough to understand that, you can help them work through that process by looking for all the clues. And we're down to about the last two minutes, so let's go on the myth that Christmas can't change. Yeah, so, I mean, basically this kind of gets to the purpose of the book. What I'm trying to do is suggest that, that like, so many people are frustrated with Christmas, and they feel like they're locked into it, and they have to do Christmas like they always have, even though they're so frustrated with it. And I'm arguing that it, it can change. You don't have to celebrate Christmas the same way that you always have. Nobody has a corner on the right or wrong way to celebrate Christmas. You really can make it what you want it to be, because Christmas has always been changing. It has been a, in a constant state of flux ever since it's been around, even before the 1100s, when it was called Christmas. It's always been changing, and so whatever you're frustrated with, whatever you don't like at Christmas about Christmas, you can just reject it. You can just say, I don't want to do it that way anymore and not do it that way anymore. And you're not and in doing so you're not going to be you know going against uh, the contradicting some ancient old tradition that dates back two thousand two thousand years. No, most of the traditions that you don't like are only about a hundred, two hundred years old anyway. So if you don't like them, get rid of them. We really can take Christmas back, as it were Make it our own. Make it whatever we need to be. Everyone can celebrate exactly how they want to without having to feel bad. Yeah, and that's a great way to end the book on. So tell us um, where people can find your writings and um, your great course information. Yeah, so uh, all my great courses, uh, you can just go to thegreatcourses.com to find my great courses. Uh, just Google my name there uh, uh, once you, or you know, search for my name once you get there. Um, all of my works are on academia.edu, so just Google David Kyle Johnson, academia.edu, and you'll find links to uh, uh, all of my stuff. And then look for The Myths That Stole Christmas. You can find that on Amazon, either on ebook format or in print format. Or, of course, you can go to the Humanist Press website uh, and find it there. And last time I looked, they were 20% off. I believe the Humanist Press were doing a little uh, promotion for 20% off of of the book uh, uh, this weekend. So uh, take a look at that. Yeah, so that's a a great option to do that. So got about 30 seconds. So what are some other good thoughts to leave people about philosophy in general in, in quick 30 seconds? Yeah, so, uh, don't think, don't think like Marco Rubio that we need, uh, less philosophers and more welders, right? Nothing against welding at all, but philosophers not only make, uh, more than you would possibly, than you would normally think, but philosophy and which goes hand in hand with critical thinking is so important to the way that our society functions and it makes you a better human being. So study more philosophy and it will enrich your life. Thank you, Kyle Johnson. It's been great talking to you this morning. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for having me on. It was fun. And I'd like to thank you for tuning in to Atheist Talk. I'm Scott Lohman. This show depends on the generous support of our members, sponsors, and donors. And join us again next Sunday for another program. Please consider supporting the show through the donation link at mnatheist.org. The podcast for the show will be on the radio page later today. This has been Atheist Talk on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Have a great day.